As we come now before the very Word of God, if you'd like to read with me, you can turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1. You'll see the page number even printed there in your bulletin. Nice handy reference. But we'll be here in James chapter 1. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Uh, Lord, the psalmist says to us that we, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And we want that to be true of us this morning. Would you help us not only to hear these things, but to have them stored in our hearts to really change us, not only that we would believe you more, but also that we would not sin against you, that we would want even to follow you. Uh, Lord, these things happen by your hand, and so we ask your, your help. Guide us by your spirit now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This is uh, the book of James in chapter 1. I want to read just a handful of verses here, beginning in verse uh, 12. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Blessed, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the word of God. Now, we've been here with James for a little over a month at this point as we continue to work our way through his writing here. I know, and let me just address some broad issues here. James, as a particular book in the Bible, has the reputation, at least according to some, to be an almost moralistic book. Uh, that, that James is talking less about the good news of the gospel of Jesus, that it's uh, less hopeful and it's more about the morals of what to do and what not to do. So that can have the feeling or at least the effect of thinking of James as sort of like having one hand on his hip and the other finger like shaking in, in your face uh, like a parent after you've just uh, hit your sister or something like that. Uh, and, and, but if we look at the whole context of what James is doing here, James doesn't just want his listeners to be good although we assume he does want that. Uh, we want to grow in our holiness. God calls us to holy lives. James really wants his listeners, though, to be steadfast, to be anchored. 
He calls them to hold fast. Uh, Later in the book, hold fast to your faith in Jesus and not give up. So this is written more as an encouragement, not meant to be a, a particular discouragement. We could say the letter's less about what we ought to be and more about what we, what we want to be. That now that we're in Jesus, now that we have already been saved by Jesus, Jesus now would shape us so that we would remain steadfast, that we would stand the test, that we would receive the crown of life, not through our good works or through our good morals, but through the promises of God. That's his intention here, broadly. Now, that's what's going on 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 the whole, particularly in the section we've just read here. James wants to encourage our steadfastness in the specific area of temptation. That's what this section is about, temptation. So that's what we're unpacking today. And in reference to temptation, we specifically will be asking three questions, which are these. Temptation, what is it? Where does it come from? And what do we do with it? So if you're the kind of person who likes to take notes, I tried to say that slow for you. Temptation, three questions. What is it? Where does it come from? What do we do with it? Let's just jump in for the first one. Temptation. What is it? Let me give you my best definition here. Temptation, just very briefly, is any attempt to entice a person to sin. Any attempt to entice a person to sin. So this is different than the kind of thing that the cherry pie sitting on the counter does. At least to me. There's a sort of enticement there. You know, it might not be good. To, you know, it's like it, call, it beckons. It calls me to eat a piece of it. I just want a piece, especially if it's hot and mm, smells a cherry. Um, and, and it might not be good or healthy to eat a piece of it, especially if you've already just eaten three slices. Not that that's a true story or anything. But, uh, but that's not necessary. That's a sort of enticement. It's not the kind of enticement we're, we're talking about here. That might be sin, but not necessarily. Here we're talking about enticements to sin, enticement into immorality or or to something that's against the law of God. And one of the most important things to observe about what James has said here is that temptation is not the same as sin. Did you catch that in the reading? Temptation and sin are not the same thing. They're related, but they're not the same. Temptation is any attempt to entice us into sin, but the temptation itself isn't sin. We know that not only from what James has said here, but we know it's true because Jesus, who was sinless, was tempted all throughout his life on earth, from, you know, a little child, teenage years, young adulthood, and into his 30s. He was tempted throughout, especially the, you know, the big scene of it is the beginning of his ministry when he spends 40 days in the, in the desert, and he's visited by Satan himself with three particular temptations. And we should not think that, that Jesus is invulnerable to temptation just because he's God. He is God, but Jesus doesn't have some sort of, you know, bulletproof vest 
or, you know, a Jedi force field or something around him that, you know, temptation's just like, bing, 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 it doesn't even touch him. These are real, felt temptations that Jesus faced. Because he has weakness in some sense with the humanity that we also have. Uh, The author of Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews 4, verse, uh, where is it? Verse 15, the author says this, for we don't have a high priest, this is in reference to Jesus, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Everyone faces temptation. Everyone. Even Jesus. Even Christians. Even you. And so that's why James doesn't uh, doesn't say, if you're tempted. He says, when you're tempted, this is what's going on. Which means, do not be discouraged when you face temptations. Don't be discouraged when you face temptations, even if you find yourself facing the same temptations again and again and again. I know some people, maybe even most people, might wrestle with the same things and start to think to themselves over time, I ought to be past this by now. If I were a better Christian, I wouldn't struggle with this by now. That's not true. That's not what the Bible says. One writer said, the measure of of Christian maturity is not indicated by the infrequency of temptation, but by the infrequency of succumbing to temptation. That is, by how often we push against it. We want to push against temptation when it comes. What we're most concerned with is really the outcome of temptation. Because even though temptation itself is not sin, temptation can, and often does, if we're not careful or watchful, can lead us into sin. You can see the chain of events Uh, as James unpacks them, where where is it? Verse 14 of our text, he says, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. There's really three parts to the chain there. There's, There's temptation mixed with desire, that if it gets, takes hold, brings forth sin, which brings forth death. That is, temptation does not always lead to sin, but when it conceives, when it takes root, then it does. So temptation here is described as being a lure, verse 14. It's described as a lure, and instantly when I hear lure, I think of fishing, which I think is kind of the idea here that that he's after. So uh, we've got a fishing lure, and depending on what kind it is, whether it's a hook or an actual lure, you've maybe got a nice tasty worm on it or some sticky ball of, of, of something that you put on your hook. Or, or maybe there's some, you know, sparkly metal 
that it's supposed to catch the fish's eye to try to appeal, to try to entice. So temptation is not like a fishing net, which is just, if you're in the wrong place at the wrong, at the wrong time, you will be caught. There's nothing you can do about it if you're a fish, just you come up with the net. This is a fishing lure that is, it's put right in front of you to try to get you to bite. And the bite is what turns the temptation into sin. That's when the hook has actually taken hold. To be clear here, when we bite and it turns into sin, that doesn't always mean it's some sort of external sin, something that we do. Sometimes the bite can be something that happens in our mind, in our heart. You know, Jesus talks about whoever looks at a woman with lust in his heart has committed adultery, but there the bite has taken hold. It doesn't mean that every single passing thought we have, not every single temptation that comes through is sin, but when we dwell on it, when we let the, the hook take its effect, that's when the bite takes hold and temptation turns into sin. You can hear this happening in real time. I'm sure we all know what this looks like, but it's striking to actually watch it play out. In the book of Proverbs, there, there's a dad talking to his son is sort of these set of chapters, and he's warning his son with this account of the young man and the forbidden woman. It's a very long uh, section, so I won't read it all, but in, in Proverbs 7, uh, verse 18, we kind of cut in with the, the woman speaking to this young man. She says, Come, let's take our fill of love till morning. Let's delight ourselves with love, for my husband isn't at home. He's gone on a long journey, and he took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he'll come home. And with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. At once, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. You can hear the chain of events really taking effect here. James's temptation to sin to death, you can hear it. It's the sed seductive speech of the woman. And then he follows her which leads to costing him his life. So while temptation itself is not sin, it is still dangerous, perilous, because the very nature of temptation is to entice. That's our first question. What is temptation? Now, before we can address what we're to do about temptation, first we have to deal with the second one. Second question is, where does it come from? Which is, what is the source of temptation? So if temptation's a lure, really, what's on the other end of the fishing line? Who's holding the reel? The scripture tells us, and you probably also just know from experience, that, there, that there's lots of things that might bring us in some way into temptation. So bad company, if you're with the same sort of bad influences, peer pressures and all those things, poorly chosen friends can be temptation. Also, perhaps upbringing, 
the things you're taught to do or not taught to do can lead into temptation. Or even society at large, you know, the sorts of things that we start to consider normal and acceptable, or, or, or even Satan himself can be a source in some sense. You know, I often say, uh, the devil's not behind every door, but he is behind some, Betty Ann. Not because I, we talked about this in Sunday school, give you a wink. He is behind some. And all of that might be true. But that's not what James addresses here. He doesn't say they're untrue. He's just talking about a particular thing. Here he's addressing only two sources of temptation, one of which he says is definitely not the source, and the other he says is definitely is. One's definitely not, one definitely is. If I read it again, listen, and see if you can catch the answer to our question of where this comes from. Verse, uh, where is it? Verse 13. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself, he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That is, temptation is not from God. Not from God ever. But it is from you. Your temptations come from your own desires. You are the one on the other end of the fishing line. You're biting your own hook. And that means that in the end, when we sin, we have no one to blame for that sin but ourselves. So if you are taken in by something like drunkenness. Can't blame the bar or the six-pack or a bad day for that. The root of that sin is your desire. If you're taken in by sexual sin, you cannot blame the way somebody else dresses or somebody else's seductive speech or the images that might show up on advertisements or internet or TV. The root of that sin is your desire. You want me to keep going? I can. If you're taken in by impatience and anger, it's not your kid's fault. It's not your parents' fault. It's not the loudmouth person at the grocery store. It's not their fault. It's yours. Or if you're taken in by despair, hopelessness, that is not the fault of society or news or politicians. The root of that is you. So stop trying to find fault in everybody else. Now, that's not to say that nothing else matters or that other things don't interplay with these, that there's no role in temptation whatsoever. We need to be wise with how we engage things. Some things we might know are temptations, so try to steer clear from them. We want to 
follow the Spirit's guidance in these sorts of things. That's, I'm not saying they have no role whatsoever, but I am saying that if you're trying to point the finger at somebody else for your own sin, you are fooling nobody but yourself. Your sin is your fault. Now, does it feel like James has his hand on his hip and his finger out? I know that this can be a a hard pill to swallow, and there's even a harder one. Temptation, when we face temptation, it's easy to want to pull it outside of ourselves. The, The temptation to lay blame on other people is very, very strong, and so some of us, in a last ditch attempt, try to even blame God for our sin. God, you are the one who made me like this. God, I prayed for this, but you didn't take it away. God, the woman gave me the forbidden fruit and I ate, and you're the one who put her in the garden here with me to begin with. But James is very clear here. God is not the source of your temptation. You are tempted, lured, enticed by your own desire. And none of this makes God any less sovereign or takes away any of his power or any of his rulership. We know that God is still in full control of all things, even over our sin. So we do hear things in Scripture, descriptions about how God hardens hearts sometimes, how God sometimes gives people over to their own lusts and passions, chilling passages. None of this uh, is saying that God is enticing a person into sin, however. He's not dangling the lure in front of you trying to get you to bite it. Calvin, uh, John Calvin, old dead guy from centuries ago who was a a famous fervent believer in the sovereignty of God uh, and was passionate about that, also said this about this text. He says... Is it the case that when God makes a man blind or hard, that God is the instigator or accomplice of sin? No. Indeed, this is his vengeance upon sin, and the fair retribution which he takes upon evildoers who have spurned the direction of his spirit. But consequently, neither is is the origin of sin to be found in God, nor is the blame to be imputed to him as though he sought pleasure in wrong. Calvin, James, the scripture speaks similarly, that the origin or the blame for our sin is not God, it's us. Now, that naturally leads us into our third and last question. If the origin of sin is in ourselves, is there anything that we can do? The last question is, what do we do with temptation? We know that we cannot do away with temptation altogether, at least not in this life. But we can interrupt the chain of events that lead us into sin and death. If temptation can lead to sin, which produces death, we want to 
cut that chain before it gets to the sin so we keep the hooks from sinking into our mouths. We call this process of, of putting that to death the mortification of sin. Just like that phrase. I'm going to mortify sin. That is, I'm going to kill sin before the sin kills me. And while it might be uh, hard for us to admit that the sin comes from our own desire, that's a hard thing to have to face, there is some good in this, which means that whenever I face sin, whenever I cross from temptation to sin, if it's in me, then that also means that it's within my arena to do something about it. If it's only someone else's fault, I can't always do anything about that. But if it's within me, I can do something with that. It takes work, it takes effort to do this, but you can do it with the help of the Spirit. Scripture is full, full of help and wisdom in, in how to avoid temptation leading into sin. But let me mention just a few and then I'll close. A few things that will help us deal with temptation. The first is pray. <laughs> Is that an obvious one? Sounds a very Christian one. Pray. But we do that. We even do that together. You know, we pray the Lord's Prayer together every Sunday. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We're asking him to rescue us before we even get to us to it in the first place. We pray that together uh, at least once a week, and that's, that's a good thing. It's, it's good for what it is, but it's also very general. Lead us not into temptation. We also want this prayer to be specific. So you probably know the temptations that you particularly are vulnerable to. If I were to guess, I bet you have already thought about them a few times in this sermon already. You know your particular temptations. You know the holes in your own armor. So pray for that. Not just generally, Lord, keep me from temptation, but keep me from this temptation. Help me to be watchful against it, to, to know what might lead me to it so that I can keep away from it in the first place. Pray specifically. That's one that will help. Another thing that will help is to check your teachers. Paul, uh, the New Testament writer, tells Timothy, his protege, that some people will accumulate teachers to suit their own passions. Some people accumulate teachers to suit their own passions. That is, you gather around yourselves leaders that not only don't warn you about the dangers of the lure, they actually tell you that to bite it is good. They actually feed those passions within you. If you gather around teachers to suit your own passions, they will tell you that your relationships ought to suit your desires. Your news intake ought to suit your desires. Your God ought to suit your desires. They usually don't say it in those words. It's usually much more subtle than that, but they feed into the temptation. 
These sorts of teachers will, will bend the truth to fit you instead of doing the harder work of calling you to bend to the truth. And if you're not careful to check your teachers, it's easy to take the bait and to be lured and enticed. Last practical piece I'll mention, what we can do about temptation, just honestly, is flee from it. You know, if I, if I know that my temptation is not from outside, but it's actually mainly from within me, then I don't even want to pause for a moment when the seductive speech comes. It's going to hook me like that. If I hear it, I want to jam my fingers in my ear and run out screaming as fast as I can. Hopefully not literally. Maybe literally, I don't know. Uh, one of the most common temptations that I hear from other people, I won't be specific about anyone's uh, things, but the, one of the most common temptations that I hear and even that I experience myself is the thought that if I have failed once and again and again, that I will automatically fail again. When I see the lure, when I see the hook, I recognize it. I've nibbled this hook before. I've been taken by this hook before, so I might as well just nibble it again because I'm too tired, I am too stuck, I am too helpless, I cannot escape. That thought isn't true. Put it out of your mind. That thought isn't true. Even if you've fallen into sin, entered into sin again and again and again, that does not mean that you will do it again. Now, if it was all up to you, if you were by yourself, that might be true. But God, if you're a believer, has not left you alone in this. He is with you. Uh, one of the most punchy, powerful verses, I think it's printed somewhere if you want to look this up later yourself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, um, verse 13, Paul writes this, listen, no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful, and he won't let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee. In other words, don't fool yourself into thinking that you're just going to take it again. Don't let the glimmer and the glitter of the lure itself take you in. Get out. Flee from it. Find another place to hang out if you've got to. Get out, and the best place to flee is straight into the strength of God. He is not there to crush you about these things. He is there to help you endure it. And that is what James wants for us here. We know, of course, it's good. Some of these things are wise, I hope, I think, to pray, to check your teachers, to flee from the temptation. But you know the main call that James gives us here in these verses? 
One main thing he asks for us. It's in verse 16. He says, Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. That's his main call in relation to temptation. Don't be deceived. So then we have to ask, deceived by what? You know, what's the lie that you don't want me to... Don't be deceived into thinking that God is the source of your temptation. Don't be deceived into thinking that God is trying to entice you into sin. Don't be deceived that if you belong to Jesus, that God is against you and not for you. In other words, don't forget that God is good. And because God is good, of course, he is a just judge. He takes sin very seriously. He has wrath, hellish wrath against evil and sin. Part of his goodness. But also because he's good, he has sent Jesus to save us. He's promised a crown of life to those who love him. He's he's the source of every good and perfect gift. It's it's out of love for us that his will is not to bring forth death in us, but to bring new life, that we're reborn. He describes it as a sort of first fruits. We're a sort of harvest that are coming from it. In other words, don't forget that God is good. It's not just that you're prone to forget. It's that you might be tricked deceived, either by the outside or even by your thoughts from inside. Your desires from the inside may be tempting you, luring you away from thinking about the goodness of God. So don't let your own desires fool you. Our God is good. He's good. He's good, good, good. And because our God is good, he cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. So trust him. Would you pray with me? Lord, would you plant these truths deep in our hearts so that we would not be deceived and that we would trust you as a good God. Help us to fight against the temptation to sin that your spirit would make us strong so that sin would not reign in us. We know that you are the king. Help us, enable us to follow you in your good ways. And we ask all of this in in Jesus' name. Amen.